All right, well, our time together will be spent today in Luke. I want to begin reading in verse 19 here of chapter 16. These are the words of the Lord. Jesus speaking, he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would give us understanding of it, that we may live in obedience to it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, said the following. He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that purge people into ruin and destruction. And then he goes on to say, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I can't, hear, can't help but hear the words of the apostle Paul writing to Timothy and then think of how Paul must have been giving some commentary perhaps or further application perhaps of this parable that we find today of the rich man and Lazarus. Our text today is a great example, a further illustration of Paul's warning about the love of money. In fact, if we just do a bit of review, just in Luke's gospel alone, there has been a lot said about money, about the rich and warning in fact, if you go back to chapter 11, there the woes to the Pharisees are pronounced. And in the woes to the Pharisees, Jesus highlights how they were self-serving. They served themselves and not others. In chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool, it was the rich fool that kept building barns, bigger, bigger and bigger barns to uh, accumulate his possessions. 
chapter 14, we see the parable of the great banquet. And it's, who is it that's coming into the banquet? It's the poor, the crippled, the lame, but it's the rich that did not come because they had so many excuses. Or in chapter 15, the prodigal son, he asked for his inheritance and he goes and squanders his riches only to be found with the pigs. And in chapter 16, last week, we saw the parable of the dishonest manager. And there Jesus, in application of that text, says that you cannot love both God and money. Luke has a lot to say in his gospel about the rich and warning them, cautioning them, speaking directly to them. In fact, we know who did Luke write to. He wrote to Theophilus, probably a wealthy Gentile, and Luke himself was likely well off. Heard some refer to Luke as being even an evangelist to the rich, warning, cautioning them not to put their hope in riches. Our text today continues that theme. But in this passage of this rich man and this poor man named Lazarus, Jesus is not just once again confronting the greed and the selfishness of the Pharisees, though he is. He is wanting to confront any form of materialistic idolatry that may exist in any of his followers, including our own. Last week's parable dealt with the dishonest manager. And Jesus uses that parable and the the parable of the dishonest manager as a positive example to emulate because this man was shrewd and he's saying we should be shrewd as followers of Christ. We should be wise in how we utilize our money, not to build up for ourselves treasures on earth, but to do good for the kingdom of God. He was shrewd, thus we should be shrewd. Well, we could see this passage this morning maybe as a negative example, an example for us to be warned by. We have the rich man and Lazarus, this parable, and the weight of this text seems to be an indictment upon the rich man, the self-indulgent greed that dominated his life, and Jesus is presenting it as something that we must at all costs avoid. He's presenting it as a warning, especially in light of the eternal consequences that follow. So as we walk through this passage this morning, many refer to this as a parable. It begins very similarly as other parables. As we walk through this parable of sorts, this this text, I think we're going to find several lessons for us to consider as we consider ourselves in light of who God has called us to be in Christ several lessons that we find from this parable, this this story that, that instructs our own hearts, that helps cultivate in us the capacity for compassion and generosity as a reflection of a converted heart, warning us of the consequences, exhorting us towards a life that is to be lived out in generous obedience. I want us to walk through these lessons together in this text. First lesson that we come across, we could maybe just classify here as a stark contrast. You see this contrast, this this, uh, rich man, unnamed, 
and this poor man named Lazarus. I was talking to somebody this morning, they were in, pointing out that this is the only person named in all of the parables we find here in Lazarus. The story begins the same way that the parable of the dishonest manager begins. There was a rich man, you can see that there in the beginning of chapter 16, which indicates a strong connection, a, a, a further elaboration here in this text that we see set for us, the scene set for us there in the beginning of chapter 16. And as I said before, while the previous parable commends the shrewdness of a rich man's manager, today's text presents another rich man, but, but not in a favorable light. Again, the burden of this passage is to present this rich man to us as a warning, as an ungodly example. In order for us to unpack this a bit, we see this contrast. You see this rich man, he lived in quite a luxurious experience, didn't he? I mean, this man's loaded. He's clothed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. He dressed well and he ate well. Every day was a lavish party at this man's house. Notice it says he's clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple clothes would be would be often imported. It came from this dye that was derived from snails, very expensive. So for someone to be dressed in purple was an indicator of their wealth. The, the, it's interesting, the word fine linen can, can be a word used for actually for, for undergarments. I mean, this man even had high dollar underwear we see here. I mean, he was a rich man living his life. Oh, encourage you to take advantage. But contrast him to Lazarus. A poor man, crippled, covered with sores, sores that the dogs licked, laid in front of this rich man's house as a beggar, hoping for just a mere crumb from the rich man's table. So here we have a rich man who's inside, clothed in the best money can buy, eating the most expensive food you can enjoy, living a self-indulgent lifestyle with absolutely no worries, all the while the poor man who remains outside, clothed not in purple and fine linen, but clothed in sores, begging for this crumb so that he could have food. One man enjoying the abundance of worldly pleasure, another man experiencing the world's utter misery. Contrast couldn't be more clear. Now, as we begin to unpack further the experience and the warning that we have here through the experience of this rich man, I think there are some things that we need to be clear about. First of all, Jesus is not saying that the rich man was evil or ungodly because he had riches. He's not even saying that he had no right to be rich. And he's not saying that he should get rid of his riches and become poor himself. The problem that's being exposed here in the life of this rich man was what he did with his wealth. He's intentionally indifferent to the needs around him. And he uses the resources and the wealth that he had as a means for his own self-serving indulgence, not as a means to serve and bless others. Just like we've seen in the previous story and parable, it's an indictment here upon those who would use the world's wealth 
and resources to live this life solely for selfish reasons. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep this in mind. Wealth is not sinful, but it is very dangerous. It's dangerous because of what it tempts us towards. It's dangerous because it enables us to easily bow to it so that it becomes an, an idol uh, in our lives and our hearts given over to this idolatry. See, the rich man had more than he knew what to do with. All the while, right outside of his gates was a poor man who suffered. The problem with this rich man was what he worshiped with his stuff. He worshiped his stuff. He worshiped himself. That was his problem at the end of the day. We, as we go back to the previous text there in, in chapter 16, the rich man was a man who loved money, which meant he could not love God. Jesus already said that. You, you can't love God and love money. You can't serve both. And friends, it's important for us to hear that because as those who would have means in this world and this life today, if we have access to wealth, access to resources, which all of us do, we should see this as an opportunity to do good in the world and to be a blessing to others. A steward we're called to be. I think it's important for us to see that passages like this, so many people have taken to mean different things, but it's simply a warning to us, not to be given over to our riches, that we would use riches to serve ourselves. This is not a text that's advocating for the redistribution of wealth or that the only way to honor God is to become poor. It's simply a call to us to use what we have as a means of blessing to others to do good in this world, especially if we have abundance. It's a passage that's called here, to, it's, it's a calling to check our own hearts. It's a calling to, to look at our own hearts. It's designed to help us reflect on how we respond in this world to people like Lazarus. And how we respond to people in this world, the poor, the downtrodden. How we respond to people like that is a reflection of what's going on truly in our hearts. It's a reflection of grace or the lack of. A heart filled with compassion, a heart that has been changed by the grace of God, a heart that, is, that has been, been the, the recipient of God's favor is a heart that moves toward need and seeks to help those who are suffering. And one of the things that we could say is this, we can't have a profession of justification that we're followers of Jesus and yet have a practice of love that contradicts what we say we believe. You, you cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and live this life as if you are the best thing and the most important thing in this world. heart filled with compassion sees need and seeks to utilize the blessings and resources and wealth that we have in this life to do good. And if not, we reveal the reality of a hardened and selfish heart. 
sure there are those in, in this life that will want to take advantage of those who do good. We see that regularly. If you want to see people taking advantage of generosity, just join a church staff and you'll see it. You'll see those who are trying to work the system and how you're the 10th church now and how this is a repeated pattern. But, but, but Jesus is not saying for our hearts to be given over to generosity if they meet certain standards but rather we're called to love and to meet those who are in need. So instead of trying to justify our greediness, we do that in a number of ways, don't we? We look at the poor, we look at those who are downtrodden and oftentimes we, we come to wrong conclusions. Maybe sometimes we're, we're thinking, well, I wonder what they did to get themselves in that situation. And we begin to justify our way out of helping and serving and loving so instead of justifying our greediness, we are called to maximize our generosity. This is what Jesus is, is calling out here. So you see that through this contrast between the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. The second observation, a second lesson that we need to consider is a sober warning that's given. In verse 22 and 23, we see that both the poor man and the rich man die. Verse 22, the poor man dies and he's carried to Abraham's side. In verse 23, the rich man dies, is buried, and was suffering torment in Hades. Here the two men are contrasted yet again, but for very different experiences this time. While the rich man enjoyed ease in his earthly life, he now experienced suffering and torment in death. And while Lazarus suffered misery in his earthly life, he is now enjoying blessing at the side of Abraham. This language here, somewhat figurative language, a reference to Abraham's side, is a place of blessing, represents the reception of Lazarus into heaven. To be in someone's side or to be at someone's side or old language bosom was to be in a place of intimate fellowship with that person. And so you see that Lazarus is at Abraham's side in intimate fellowship with those who are with him. Reflection of heaven. While the poor, or excuse me, while the rich man is in Hades, in torment. Hades is a term that's used to refer to the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, the word is sheol. What's indicated here is that this man is suffering in hell. He's in anguish, he's in torment. He's inflamed as he looks up and sees Abraham and he's suffering. And we note here that there's a fixed special dimension that's at play where these men are permanently separated from one another. The rich man's suffering judgment while the poor man, Lazarus, is enjoying heavenly bliss. This story is an important reminder to us that, that death does not discriminate. And once we die, our eternal destinies are fixed. You see that very clearly here. There was nothing that the rich man could do to avoid death. The same is true with the poor man, Lazarus. Both died. And the, 
One of the things that we see here is that, that one of the, the, the choices we make in this life reflect the reality of our hearts, which we'll, we will be held accountable for in eternity. A couple of things to, to flesh out some application. First of all, this is a warning about status. Your status in the world does not determine your status before God. The rich in the world can be tempted to think that they're in good standing with God because they're in good standing with those in the world. And while the wealthy may be favored in the world, it's a reminder to us that you cannot buy favor in heaven. You cannot bribe God. Also, it's a reminder to us that wealth Wealth is not a sign of God's favor, while poverty is a sign of God's displeasure. Everyone is created in the image of God and has value as image bearers. So your financial capacity has absolutely nothing to do with your eternal destiny. Now, how you utilize your financial resources may be a reflection of the reality of your heart, which is an indicator of where you will spend eternity, but but it has no capacity and no bearing upon your eternity in the sense that the more money that you have, the, the better off you are with God. That's just simply not true. Now, in Luke's gospel, we see just a heavy emphasis on God's favor for the poor, and there are a variety of different reasons for that, but we need to be reminded that there are examples of rich people in the scripture who are godly, just as well as those who are poor who are godly. Both the rich and poor find favor in God's eyes, and so grace given to us from God has nothing to do with your financial reality. Now, I will say this, and I think Luke makes this point. The rich have a harder time. The rich have a harder time seeing and accepting grace for what it is, salvation for what it is, because they often see no need. That, that's one of the many problems with, with being given over to, to wealth and riches is that the more you have, the less you see of need in this world. You don't see your need for God. Whereas the poor have a very different experience. Wealth makes it more challenging to see your true needs before God. So friends, let this be in some ways an encouragement to you not to not to be given over to the things of this world, not to be given over to riches and wealth and those kinds of things because it can cloud your judgment, it can cloud your, the, the reality of eternal things. We're reminded here that death is the great equalizer. Whatever you have in this life will remain in this world the moment you take your final breath. It's a warning to us about status. You, 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 your status in this world is ultimately no reflection of your status in heaven. There's also a warning about death. Listen, 
Let me be of encouragement to you this morning. Unless Jesus comes back again, all of you are going to die. All of us are going to die. The story reminds us that death comes to all, to the rich as well as the poor. And once we pass from this life to the next, our eternal destinies are fixed forever. You go back to our text. You see there in verse 24, the rich man suffering in Hades. He's in torment. He lifts up his eyes. He sees Abraham far off, Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here or from there to us. See, the rich man was in torment. He was in hell because he lived for himself. He did not receive the truth of God's word and put his hope in God's promises, which was evident in his self-indulgent lifestyle. The poor man, Lazarus, whose name, by the way, means he who God helps, had received God's favor, put his hope in God's promises, and was now welcomed into heavenly bliss alongside of Abraham. Both faced an eternity based upon their responses to God in their earthly life. And listen, when they died, this could not be reversed. We see that God in the afterlife sets things up in such a way that the righteous and the unrighteous do not mix. And no, no one in that, that realm can pass from one place to the other. And that reality, I think, is very much part of this rich man's torment. He sees Abraham and Lazarus, and he longs for help from them. Notice, by the way, that amid, in the midst of his torment, the rich man, that not much has changed with his heart. In fact, he demonstrates that he knows exactly who Lazarus is. He names him. All those years that Lazarus laid outside of his gate, suffering, and now the irony is he's asking for Lazarus to come and help him, to give him AIDS. He sees him nothing more than, than being basically an errand boy. His heart hasn't changed. As the simple truth from this text is this, that heaven and hell are permanent, fixed realities. And this, friends, is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so critical. We know that as we read the, the entirety of the scriptures, the old to the new, and as we've walked our way through the gospel of Luke, one of the primary driving points of the gospel is to make clear who Jesus is so that we could put our hope and our trust in him. God has provided the way for us to be reconciled to him. He's provided the way for us to be at Abraham's side. And how you respond to the gospel, the truth, when we say the gospel, we're meaning the truth, the declaration, the reality of who Jesus Christ is and 
what Jesus came to do. He's the son of God who, come in, who came into the world living life as a man and lived a life of perfect righteousness and yet died on the cross to bear the weight and the guilt and the judgment for sinners so that those who would put their hope and faith in him, not in their riches, not in the things of this world, but their hope and faith in Jesus, their sins would be forgiven and they would be recipients of everlasting life. And friends, how you respond to that message in this life to who God is, to his promises that are based and rooted and fulfilled in Jesus Christ will be the deciding factor of where you spend eternity. And so friends, if you're here, if you're watching and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not a Christian, then listen, please. Jesus came into this world for people just like you. He came to be the source of your hope He came to be your treasure. All the treasures of this world will ultimately fail you. You you can be like the rich man. You can dress in the finest clothing. You can eat the greatest meals. The best steak, the best crab cakes, whatever it is you like, the best of that. You can have it all. And yet suffer eternally. There's nothing in this world that can can be offered to you as a source of everlasting hope. The only thing, the only reality, the only accomplishment that we have is the grace of God and demonstrated as God sends his son into the world to live this life of righteousness, to die a death on the cross for sinners, to be raised three days later from the dead so that if we would put our hope in him, he becomes our treasure and our hope. Our lives are changed forever, not just in this world, but in the next. That is where you find hope, friend. Put your hope in Christ. You can't buy your way, you can't earn your way there. Jesus bought it for you. Trust in him. As Christians, this passage should create in us an urgency an urgency in proclaiming Christ to those we know and love. Sometimes we kind of get into a comfortable rut and, and, and we're not so quick to speak. We'll share our opinion about everything else in the world, but we're, we're often slow to speak about Jesus. As this should remind us, there should be this sense of urgency. There are people that are going to go to hell Unless they put their hope in Christ, that's where they're going to go. So we should be quick to share the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish. Not only that, this should remind us that we should humbly worship and serve the Lord. He has reconciled us. He has has taken us out of this destiny that we were destined for because of his grace. So we see this sobering warning reminds us that death is real, that it comes to all of us, and at that point your eternal destiny is fixed forever, and the decisions you make in this life will ultimately ultimately reveal where you spend the next for eternity. Christ is our hope. 
Not only do we have a sober warning, we have number three, a scriptural appeal. Verse 27, and Jesus said, or excuse me, and Jesus continued to, to speak and the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone raises from the dead. You know, the rich man at this point in verse 27 finally realizes his fate. It dawns on him at this point, after this initial conversation with Abraham, that where he is, he will remain. And so he makes one more request of Abraham. This time, if Lazarus can't come to me and comfort me in my torment, then please send him from the dead to my family, to my father's house to tell my five brothers who were just apparently as greedy and self-indulgent as I was, tell them so that Lazarus can go tell them and warn them so they'll repent. And Abraham simply says, well, why would Lazarus need to go from the dead? They have the scriptures. They have Moses, they have the prophets. Let your brothers listen to the prophets, to Moses. And to which the rich man replies, well, no, Abraham, you're not getting it. Like, listen, if someone was to be raised from the dead and go to them, then they will certainly listen. That's, that's, that's a big deal, right? And then with the final word, Abraham responds, if, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone was to be raised from the dead. Abraham is affirming that the rich man's brothers have all they need to understand God's commands and God's promise. If they would simply heed the scriptures, they would repent and they would be just fine. So no miracle, in this case, a person returning from the dead, would be no better than what they already had. Jesus gives a very important lesson for us to, to understand here. He, he is pointing to the sufficiency of the scriptures. The rich man based his request on a false premise, namely that something could be more compelling than God's word, a miracle in this case. And yet we're told here that the Bible is totally sufficient when it comes to understanding God, his commands, his promises, our need for redemption and what obedience looks like to him. Because today there's such a great temptation to think that we need more than the scriptures to convince someone of their sin and need for a savior. You see this all the time. Churches and Christian ministries and Christians thinking that, that, that they need to somehow be creative or manipulative in order to impress people into the kingdom of God. Listen, people don't need creative. They don't need to be impressed. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what they need. The irony here is that through this story recorded in Luke's account, we actually have the testimony of someone from the dead through the experience of the rich man. The rich man actually becomes the testimony. 
His cry from the dead we see inspired here in the scriptures is a great warning to anyone who had not yet surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to us that we shouldn't wait. It's a warning. This passage also highlights another reality, doesn't it? And that is the stubborn nature of sin. Jesus is showing us here that no amount of miraculous signs and wonders can change a heart unwilling to submit to God's promises and truth. It's interesting, there was actually another man named Lazarus in John 11 who was raised from the dead. And what happened in that experience? They wanted to kill Jesus. Some believe, but most continued in their unbelief. And there they had a Lazarus walking around from the dead. So friends, it was not due to a lack of signs and wonders that the five brothers would remain in their sins. It is not due to a lack of miraculous kinds of things that people today remain in their sins. People remain in their sins because they love the darkness because they're in bondage, they're held captive by the God, little g, God of this world. They're blind, they're deceived, they cannot see the truth. And the only hope that they have is for God to come and be at work and to open their eyes and he does that through the scriptures. He does it through the scriptures. It's only the power of the gospel that can break people free from their bondage. God's word is sufficient. So we see, we see all of these things, all of these important lessons through this text today. This, this passage, this, this parable, it's, it's designed, inspired, it's, it's, it's inspired and designed to reorient our hearts away from that which would become an idol for us. It's, it's a warning to us not to, to be caught up with the riches of this world, that we would use the riches of this world to live a self-indulgent lifestyle, but rather to see that as an opportunity to invest in good, to serve and bless others, to do good for the poor, to be a blessing, to be someone who lives their life for something greater than themselves. It's meant to reorient our hearts away from the materialistic self-indulgent allure of the world so that we find the source of true riches and that is Christ. Riches that will last for eternity. Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So friends, I ask you simply today, where is your treasure? Where's your treasure? Are you laying up for yourselves treasure in heaven? Or are you committed to laying up for yourselves treasures on earth? This passage is all about how our earthly possessions, how our earthly treasures reveal the source of our true possession. How you view your treasure in this life, how you view and how you use treasure in this life is a reflection of your heart and ultimately reflects where you will spend eternal life. It's a picture. How you spend your money is a picture. How you invest your life in this world is a picture. It's a snapshot. It's a reflection of what is true in you, of whether or not your hope is in Jesus 
that he is your treasure. Remember the words of Jesus. You cannot serve God and money. You can serve God and have money, but you cannot serve God and serve money. Take it from the word of a rich man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking into our lives this morning as a reminder to us through this parable of being caught up with the things of this world. Lord, it's a true temptation for us to be in this world and to love it so much that we spend our lives indulging ourselves. Father, would you use this passage this morning to show us that this life is not meant to be lived for ourselves, it is meant to be lived for something infinitely greater. Father, through this passage, would you warn us, would you convict us, would you help us not only to be reminded of these things, but Lord, to be resolved by your Holy Spirit and by your power to be men and women who invest our lives and invest all that we've been given to do good, to be a blessing, to serve others. Father, to see that as a reflection of the reality of the gospel that has taken root in us. Father, how can we say we love Jesus? How can we say that we love you and, and that we love the, the gospel and yet ignore the vast need in this world? So God, would you help us to be a people who not only say with our mouths that we love Christ, but Lord, that we would demonstrate it with our actions. God, would you convict us for where we've been negligent? Would you show us ways where we are greedy and indulgent? Father, would you help us? Father, would you bring to mind just the, the weight and the, the absolute certainty of what eternity looks like and how we live our lives now is a reflection of where we're heading for eternity. So Lord, would you convict us? And Father, if there are those who have yet to put their hope in Christ, would you open their eyes to the truth this morning and would you take them from trusting in their riches from trusting in the things of this world, and Father, that their hope and their trust would be in Jesus and him alone. So Father, would you move in us in ways that we maybe perhaps don't even see ourselves? And would you bring us to repentance this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the conviction you bring upon our lives and help us, Lord, to respond to you in faith and obedience today. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.